The Son of God goes forth to war, a kingly crown to gain. His blood-red banner streams afar, who follows in his train, who best can drink his... Welcome to Death and Glory Podcast, here in Studio K. My name is Peter Rasmussen, and I am joined by my co-host, Jordan Parks. Death and Glory podcasts exist to remind Christians to love our King, die with honor, and live with hope imperishable because Christ has been raised from the dead. Before we get started, we want to remind you to check out Puritan.pub. This is a digital safe haven for Christians seeking a social media alternative to big tech. It was developed by a dear brother, Aaron Shafawalaf, and is a great way to connect with other believers. Open your browser and go to Puritan.pub terms for more information. Also, if you're a fan of the show and would like to support Death and Glory, please visit our Patreon page. Search Patreon slash Puritan Pub Media. Joe, welcome to the show. Joe is uh, a husband to Becca, father to Kessid and Ava, and a pastor of Riverbend Bible Church in Atchison, Kansas. He grew up with Christian parents and under the ministry of gospel preaching churches in northwest Missouri. The Lord graciously gave him repentance and faith in Christ late in high school and in college. He had growing aspirations to advance the gospel vocationally. After he and Becky were, Becca were married, they began preparing to serve um, Christ's interests and in overseas missions. The Lord opened the door for ministry through a two-year church plane inter- internship in Glasgow, Scotland. But during that time, the Lord was also convicting Joe of selfish ambition stirring, and stirring gospel ambition for the overlooked treasure of small-town churches in northeast Kansas and northwest Missouri. In 2020, he moved his family to Atchison, Kansas, to establish a ministry called Agros, which focuses on finding, training, and supporting pastors of small-town churches in this reason. Joe, welcome to the show, brother. Yeah, thanks, Jordan. I appreciate it. Uh, I love what you guys are doing here, so it's a joy to be a part of it. So, right off the bat, uh, tell us, what is Agros? Well, Agros is a ministry that I started uh, officially in 2021, um, and I'm now the director for the ministry, overseen by a board of directors. Um, but it, it kind of came out of um, some of what you shared there in the bio, um, just a personal burden to see um, small town churches in Northeast Kansas and Northwest Missouri thriving. And so it's a ministry that I've uh, raised support for to have a salary for and then use some of the funds for um, the ministry objectives as well um, and throw in uh, a lot of weight into trying to strengthen and spread small town churches in our region. You you talked a lot about Northwest Missouri small towns. What what would you kind of describe as your mission statement? What are you, what are you focused on? If, the way I started this was by saying we want to find, train, and support small town pastors in Northeast Kansas and Northwest Missouri. Um, Agros, the word comes from the Greek word for field. Uh, could also be translated rural or like countryside. Um, and it, I got it when I was trying to think about how to start this ministry from Matthew thirteen forty four, when Jesus tells the parable, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field or in the Greek, it would be in an agros, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And so I just felt like that did a great job of keeping my focus on really what I want to do is find men in that field, in those fields train them and then support them to see that treasure that's hidden in what looks to us like a farmer's field as ordinary as ordinary can be. But what's hidden there is the infinite treasure of the kingdom of heaven. Um, and so I, I have the, that goal of um, like part of what we're doing with find, for example, is just want to make sure that we're looking for the men who are in those small towns and just be radically biblical about what an elder must be. So looking at First Timothy 3 and Titus 1, and saying, can we find men who meet these qualifications? And um, we could talk more specifically about why I think that's an important mission objective. But I guess to say, I think a lot of men are potentially overlooked um, for pastoral ministry because they don't fit what I would consider some extra biblical qualifications that we've attached to the pastoral office that I wouldn't say are bad, are good, um, right but shouldn't be required. And so there are a lot of men who've been overlooked that are not getting trained or supported for pastoral ministry. So that's why one of my objectives was, I want to make sure I'm uh, continually looking to find men 
um, hidden in the the ordinary the ordinary life um, transformed by the gospel. Um, but then find those guys and then provide training for them where they're at and then support them in that work where they're pastoring in a small town. So that's find, train, support is often the the three words I use to kind of organize my work. So those extra biblical uh, requirements, categories, give us like an example of what you think are yeah. people are wanting to require of men. That's great. The So some that I would consider permissible would be things like academic standards. So expecting or demanding uh, a master's degree. I, I think it, I, I would not say a church is in sin for saying we'd like a man who's had a, a master of divinity degree. That's who we're looking for as a pastor. A lot of men with that degree won't go to small towns. So that's one reason why I'm careful to say that's extra biblical. I don't want to make that the standard because that would mean a lot of the churches I'd like to see served well um, might not ever get a pastor. Then there's other kinds that I would say this is not permissible for a church. A church is not permitted to put standards like, let's say, standards of entertainment. We want a guy who's got the most dynamic personality, who can wow a crowd, he can turn a phrase, tell a really funny story off the cuff. He's so fun to be around. Um, those kind of standards also, and maybe more often in small towns, end up becoming the the thing we're looking for in a pastor. Um, and when we put that standard on him, um, we often neglect to find the guy who's actually hidden under those qualities of like, well, he's a one woman man, manages his household well. He's not self-promoting. He's humble. He's a servant. And he, you know, those are the guys that actually need, the church needs to work to lift them up to the surface and say, this is who we want. So again, sorry if I'm... I'll, it's late, so I could start rambling. You'll have to go for stop me. me from that. But yeah, so the examples, I think, like some could be permissible, like an academic standard um, that I think has done good things for the church to require men who are careful in their prep and study, um, but I don't think are biblical. There's no master's degree required from scripture. And then the other other side of that being non-permissible extra biblical requirements, like we want a guy who, um, you know, like a Hollywood, we're looking, we're using Hollywood standards for our pastor. That's not, a church should not be doing that. So uh, I think you said it, you have a board now. Do, do you kind of consider this as like a co-op, a parachurch ministry? Like wh- where do you think this fits? I, I appreciate the question. and I need you to help me figure out how to describe it. <laughs> uh, it started, I just described it as a ministry um, because I did have a pretty specific focus on that fine training, supporting aspect of the ministry but as things have developed i've wanted it I, I just i do have convictions that the the local church should be the main training ground for pastors but also the church is the only um institution that god has given the authority to actually recognize pastors and so i've always been careful not to become something too separate from the church um where i like in no way could i ever train up and then appoint a pastor that's not a role i could have i don't i don't believe the bible allows me to have that kind of authority and so now what i'd like to see more is agros as a fellowship of churches who are together finding men in our midst training men in our midst and then supporting those men to go to these small towns that no longer have churches or have churches that are struggling and need a pastor and that network or fellowship of churches are collaborating through the Agros fellowship um, network uh, to do that together well, to support one another in that. So um, right now it is just a, it's a ministry of our church as far as like legally, and it's overseen by a board of directors. Um, but I, I, I do think I want to see it more. It probably even relates to that idea I was saying supporting pastors. I want the the men in pastoring in our region to have an ambition for the gospel to spread, not to be content with um, the gospel shrinking or small town churches closing their doors. And so more than just me being someone who's doing all the finding training and supporting myself, instead, I'd like more to be a, a place where I'm encouraging and charging other fellow pastors to do that with the time the Lord's given them. So I, I hope that it could become something more like a fellowship of churches, but it did start and it still operates a lot. Like I'm just uh, 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 doing, doing it as a ministry. That kind of answered my next question, kind of the long, 
long-term, short-term goals. Um, do you have a number of like how many different churches are involved with you guys right now? Yeah, it's I, I can't, shouldn't give a number because there's no like formal application process, so I can't sure. speak for anyone. Um, but we have an annual conference. And I think we had 20 churches represented at the conference. Uh, and by that, I mean, members or pastors came to the conference from 20 different churches from our region. Um, had as, some people from as far like northeast as Bethany, Missouri, and then as okay. far west as uh, Abilene, Kansas. Um, so it was a pretty big spread. Um, yeah, so not not really dense, like 20 churches spread over that distance. Is, is pretty thin, thinly spread, but it's a really encouraging conference um, just to see people caring about their churches in small places. Um, and so it was, I, I'm encouraged by those 20 churches who've been a part, um, but there's lots of different ways that a church can be connected to Agros. So I don't want to speak of it like these are people who would consciously say we are a part of some kind of Agros fellowship. A lot of them would be just one of their members came to the conference. So Amen. It's hard for me to speak of it really definitively. So you're not like replacing the SBC or something like that? <laughs> not yet, at least. Are we supposed to talk about that? Are we supposed to? <laughs> uh, well, probably. Can, let's hold should... off for today. Uh... That could be another discussion. <laughs> yeah. We'll have you on next season. I honestly was not. I, yes, yes. Have me back and we'll we'll pontificate about that. I. It's just funny to me. I've seen several people networks of churches starting to to develop in the wake of what's going on in the SBC, but a lot of them are quick to say, we're not starting a new denomination. And I, I don't need them to, but I have been wondering, like, why is everybody so quick to say that? I don't know what, what's wrong with starting. And this is just my ignorance speaking. I don't know, like, why everyone is so hesitant to start that. So anyway, yeah, don't get me started. We'll ramble for all night. Same here. Same here. Let's, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> so... What do you what do you think are the greatest needs for these small town communities that you're you're ministering to? I don't have a lot of hands-on interaction with the communities apart from the saints in those communities and even in particular the pastors in those communities. But that's by conviction because I do care about these communities and it's because I believe they need churches who actually believe the gospel. And that that's shown in them actually living a life worthy, a, a life worthy of that gospel. Um, and so I, yeah, I, I think that that can seem like a, a pat answer. Um, but I do think that it, it actually has some meaning in small towns because I'm not confident that our churches fully understand like what it, what it means to be a Christian separate from, I just grew up in the church and this is the traditional thing I do. And most of my family goes here. So I just show up too. And I'm not even prepared to say, I know that those people have not been saved by the Lord. They're not regenerate. But what I'm saying is small towns need churches who, um, who take the gospel seriously, who take their mission to that town seriously, who actually believe heaven and hell are on the line. And um, actually believe it's worth risking that friendship that you've had for 20 years to appeal to them to repent again after you've done it many times, you know, that, that kind of sacrifice um, is hard because I think one of the things, um, one of the attitudes that are easy to tolerate in a small town is just nothing here matters. We're all low key. Everything here happens slow. Nothing big happens here. And we like it that way. There's nothing there's nothing weighty going on in a small town because we don't have the big corporations here. We don't have the big city news items happening here. And so it can create an attitude that infects the church too, that we don't have a message that should create a fork in the road for eternity for people and should be transforming me and making me live more and more Christ-like in my life. And so that's what I think these communities need are, are churches that are really taking the gospel seriously, preaching the gospel clearly, um, and stirring one another up, like Hebrews said, stir one another up to love and good works. We need churches that are abounding with that. You know, I, one of the ways you guys sent me that question in prep beforehand, I thought, you know what small town churches need are high octane Christians. We need Christians who are like missionaries. Um, and we don't, we don't view ourselves that way. So that's, I, I think that that's part of what even 
brought me back from Scotland to this region was when I got to Scotland, I realized where I go does not make me a super Christian. I was the same lame coward struggling to walk in holiness, struggling to believe that the word of God does the work of God. And just realized if, if that, if that's actually going to come out of someone's life genuinely, it's going to have to be for greater reasons than, oh, I'm all of a sudden in a place that matters. And that's what put small towns, I think, deeply back on my heart was just realizing, I think I had neglected and overlooked small towns because they don't feel like they matter. They look like, they look like an agros. What could be there? Well, the kingdom of heaven and its infinite treasure could be hidden there. So live like that. So anyway, please comment on that. That's what I feel like is my heart through Agros is let's have churches in these small towns that are that are living like we are missionaries in a dangerous territory, you know, zealous for righteousness and zealous for Christ, those kind of things. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you make a good point with the complacency. Um, I was actually up in Bethany yesterday. I have a client up there and, uh, you know, I was telling my wife yesterday that it's like, it's almost like they're, I don't know if you want to say 20 years behind or, uh, you know, like the way we sit, you know, here and we look online and we see something that's happening in New York city or wherever. And we don't really think that it's actually affecting us. They're really like, they're on the same trajectory. It's just maybe a little bit slower. Yeah. You know, yeah, maybe, you know, Maybe they don't have a giant parade parade coming down their downtown, but it's going to be there at some point, probably, you know, you don't, you don't get to just coast along and move uphill. Right. You know, like, and, uh, you know, you're sliding down if you're coasting. Right. And I think that um, that's one of the things that has made that apathy stirred up for Christians is because we don't have the pride parade going down our downtown. We think, Oh, you know what? like bold gospel of evangelism doesn't have to happen here. We're not doing that. So we're, we're pretty good confusing outward moralism with the work of the Holy spirit. Like, okay, our, our neighbors are not overtly offensive morally to us. So they don't need the gospel. What a sad, but I mean, even for my own heart, how often do I believe that? How often does that douse my evangelistic fervor for my neighbors? So uh, yeah, sorry. I just meant to piggyback what you were saying. I think that that, no, that's great that delay of the influence from the world is also one of the things that makes us so, yeah, it can be so apathetic. So that leads really well into my next question. So small town USA has a lot of connotations for different people around the country. I would say for most of us in the Midwest, it typically evokes, evokes pretty positive emotions. Uh, it's seemingly a, a pretty moral place, conservative place. You think of strong families, you think working class, you think, uh, you know, people who are conservative patriotic, et cetera. Um, and I think that, I think that those notions for the most part hold true, but would you say that people romanticize that a lot, that that's not necessarily, that's not the full picture of reality? Yeah, that's, um, one of the best books I've read on small town ministry was by Stephen Whitmer. It's called a big gospel in small places. And, Stephen says, I can't quote him exactly, but something to the effect in that book of you cannot serve something that you either idealize or despise. Hmm. And he's talking about small towns. He said, if you think you're going to serve in Mayberry, you're in for a rude awakening because it's not that anymore. Small towns actually have demographically, I think, are are getting to be pretty poor places to live, pretty uh, drug culture is infecting small towns rapidly. So um, that's been a, a higher percentage of drug culture is growing in, in rural towns. Um, so yeah, there's just a levels of poverty in small towns and those kind of things um, that are that are on the rise. So if you're talking socially, um, we do have some overly romanticized pictures of what small towns are like, that they are we're not ready for them to be facing those kinds of problems, you know, like alcoholism, broken families. It's not the Andy Griffith show. Hmm. Um, but too, it's worth saying, you know, part of our clinging to the Andy Griffith show is the problem. Believing that that 1950s outward moralism is enough. And that's why we don't need, like I was saying just a minute ago to have that evangelistic fervor, even if you do have 
small towns that are relatively stable socially um, and look good on the outside. There's still a host of, yeah, you brothers know it. There's nowhere you can go on earth to escape sin. Yep. We, the Christian will be at war with sin um, until Christ returns and um, finally completes the crushing of Satan's head. Um, and so that's just, even if it looks good on the outside, I, I know you're not really asking that, but I would just say, yeah, we, we have romanticized it a little bit. Um, I actually got to talk with Stephen Whitmer on the phone one time and he likened it to, uh, he's somewhere in Massachusetts, I think, small town in Massachusetts. He said, you know, when you see our town from a distance, it's covered in snow, man, it looks so beautiful. It looks so pristine. But I'm sitting here in my office and I can see out the street where the the mud and the dirt and the gross gravel has been turned up on that snow. And that's what it's like. Once you get into it, it gets ugly. You're dealing with people. You're still dealing with sinners. Um, and yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's just the reality. No matter where you minister, context doesn't change that. And I think that's a good reminder for guys like us who live in the city because, you know, we see the, we do see the pride parades and the pride flags, you know, waved in our street and we see, you know, shootings on the news all the time and all this stuff. And we think, oh, there's something that the grass is greener on the other side out there. And it's, it's good to know. It's good to have a reminder that, uh, that's not necessarily the case. Like, and like you said, sin, sin is going to be wherever we go. Yeah, that's right. They'll have different symptoms, different expressions, and they might be more socially destructive in some places, but God, God's wrath against sin is the problem and our sin nature is the problem and churches warring against that everywhere. They, yeah, we need churches warring against that together everywhere. And so even if small towns still have some vestiges of um, a more stable society from yesteryear, we, that doesn't mean we don't need to be selling all that we have with joy to buy that treasure, giving it all to, to labor for the kingdom there. Cause those, that, that, that outward uh, moralism can hide so much, um, so much that's displeasing and defaming to God's glory. I want to go back for just a second. And sorry, I'm cutting you off, Peter. You mentioned guys with master's degrees, you know, not necessarily wanting to take a spot uh, in a small town church, maybe controversial topic bringing up here, but you know, everyone... <laughs> Peter's rooting me on. <laughs> uh, he likes those. Pass, yeah, he does like those. Uh, so passing of Tim, Tim Keller recently, and love him or hate him, had a big influence on Christianity over the last 30 plus years. And his big push for for the city, for the city, for the city, I think it's had a lot of positives. I think it's also had a lot of negatives. I want to know your opinion on whether – that trend over the last however many years you want to call it has hindered guys coming out of seminary or guys who want to be pastors from moving into small town roles. Because if if the flavor of the month is, oh, we got to get into the city because that's where all the people are, has that hindered the gospel in some way from from small town America? That's a good question. Um, I, if I had the answer in a word, I'd say yes, but I think that I wouldn't be content to answer in a word. So if you let me ramble a little bit, I would Please do. say the first, first thing I would say is um, just as a positive um, for Keller's ministry. And I think one thing that probably needed to happen when he was saying that, go back to the city, um, was working against that notion that um, the Bible Belt, they still want pastors here. So let's get trained up as a pastor and then just go where it's easy, where people are socially stable. They're still socially conservative. And we're basically just going to let a whole bunch of nominal Christians fill our churches until the church just completely dies in America. Um, and I think Keller was recognizing the church has got to grow through conversion. We have got to get back and we've got to go where the where there's the most hatred of the world and work there too. And I could see that being a really helpful corrective. If at the time the church just bought into, let's go where the people like us, that's not going to last forever. We, sure. we have to, because that's also going to taint the message. You know, you're, you're going to preach to their itching ears. You're going to decry uh, progressivism and they're going to think you're preaching the word of God um, and you're not going to actually address their sins. So I think that that was probably like a needed thing. 
then on the negative side, I do think that it did create this um, energy and enthusiasm to be an inner city church planter that uh, honestly like pulled at my heart and part of what I meant just sharing that bio with you, the selfish ambition that was exposed in me. I wanted I wanted to do ministry because I wanted my life to matter for selfish reasons. And I wanted I needed to be ministering in a place that mattered. And so I would use statistics and demographics to help convince me that I'm doing ministry where it matters. Um, and that's part of what took us to Scotland because Scotland's now less than 2% evangelical. So it was really easy to validate myself that I'm doing ministry where the gospel is dying. This matters. And I think that that's the danger with uh, church, like uh, the, the drive to the city is that you can vindicate it in a in an empirical sense. You can look at the data and say there's more people, there's more social problems, the gospel's needed here more. But I think that that's making that mistake. I haven't, I didn't mean to bring this up so much in the conversation, but that I've actually been reading Martin Lloyd Jones recently, and he talks about it's really important to remember we're preaching primarily and fundamentally against sin and the sin nature, not sins and particular transgressions, because we all have that sin nature in common, and that's what all sin, all sin nature is under God's wrath. So anyway, that's just, I think, one of the things that, that that gets left behind when you start trying to vindicate your ministry, driving people to the city, saying it matters here more because we can use statistics to prove that. We can show you the kinds of sins that are going on in the city. They're more flagrant or more visible. And so, yeah, then leaves the guys who are in the small town feeling like, okay, I guess what I do doesn't matter. So they start, they're, they're feeling ostracized or belittled by that recruiting people to the city. Um, but then also, like you said, um, I don't think it's chiefly responsible. I do think it's just, there is that, that, um, probably selfishness, love of luxury. Like who wants to go where you don't have Chipotle, you know, like <laughs> I can plant a church where I get Chipotle or I can plant a church where I don't get Chipotle. Um, but not just that, like maybe a more meaningful way to say it is, man, if you, when I was in seminary, I was surrounded by gospel soldiers who believed what we're talking about matters infinitely all the time. And then I got to Scotland after that, surrounded by a whole bunch of, uh, we, we did have a church we were with. But most of my neighbors, most of my interactions were with secular people who don't believe spiritual things matter at all. And it's a similar thing, just like why go to a small town where people feel like, you know, we're basically morally good people. We don't really care about the truths of Scripture. What a, what a wet blanket to the faith. Why go back to that? And then if you add to that, most Christian leaders are saying, get to the city and plant churches in the city. Yeah, I mean, you just you, were, you didn't need an excuse and that. That justified it. So I do think that probably contributed to the, the decline of the rural church. Yeah. You mentioned um, kind of that desire for notoriety to, you know, for what you're doing to be, to matter, kind of looking at the culture more broadly. I think one of the things that's really brought that about is the rise of uh, the internet, social media. Um, it's very easy for a person. I mean, if you have a smartphone, you can literally reach billions of people by putting a video out on Twitter or TikTok or whatever. Um, yeah. And you don't need anything else. It's really high quality. And I think I, what I would be interested in is like, what's your perspective on how that how that has affected the small town in general? Like just the fact that the Internet is there, meaning, yeah, you can run, but you can't hide. You know, if your kids have YouTube and whatever else. That stuff can come directly into their bedroom when, you know, you don't think it's there. And then um, secondly, how has that affected like the small town church where now, you know, I mean, it, historically, like, you know, you went to church on Sunday. You probably had other services that you were going to throughout the week. You knew your pastor, but that you weren't really, you know, listening to other teaching. You didn't have hundreds, if not thousands of other pastors at your fingertips, some good, some horrendous you know how does that affect the 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 local church there in the small towns yeah that's really hard to assess um because i've just grown up in it and so to watch i i can't speak to the change it'd you know be great our our full-time pastor i'd love to hear his perspective on that 
um, because he's been pastoring for long enough to watch that change affect people. Um, but I do think like, you know, so one, one way I've heard of it affecting small town cultures, there's not as much of a community as there once was. Um, one of my friends has been pastoring in a small town for 10 years now. And he said, there is no way into the social life of this church unless you're a family member, or sorry, social life of this community, unless you're a family member or your kids are in sports. I think part of that is, well, because we all go home and turn on the television now. And instead there used to be like, I grew up in a town of about 300. And when I was really young, my grandpa had the barber shop. And that's kind of where like the guys came up and shot pool and talked and they did music there on Thursday nights. And um, there was more like a social, a community cohesion uh, that I think has pretty well evaporated because you can get such great entertainment at home and not have to deal with, you know, the, the, the pains of community of being a neighbor to someone in, in, in the flesh. Um, so I think that that has really probably begun changing just the community aspect that you would probably idealize a small town having. If you just think of a small town, you think, Oh yeah, everybody knows everybody. And they're always out on their front porches talking with each other. And I think that more and more is dying and it's, it's becoming more and more family centric. And like I said, probably kids in sports is a, a big thing in small towns too. And I, I think that's sad, but as far as the churches go, I think that could, yeah, that could <laughs> affect it in so many different ways. So you could have members who are listening to other pastors and that causing some good or bad in the church if they're doing that, but probably more so just you mentioned, I don't know if you mentioned like TikTok and stuff, but these other social media platforms, they just have burst onto the scene. And I don't know that any of us have been trained or discipled well to think these people are promoting worldview. Like this is not, these are competing pastors. And I'm, I, that's probably overstating it a little bit. No, I think you're trying right. To get at, right. We haven't fully grasped and equipped our people to think, hey, two hours a night on TikTok is shaping you. You're being discipled. I don't know that it's as common for the small town church members to be on uh, YouTube and listening to other preachers for two hours a night, but it wouldn't be surprising to me if we realized like, yeah, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, these influencers that are getting on there, they are shaping you with what they say. Um and probably one of the ways I'm just picturing that affecting the way they view church is, man, a sermon is boring. I'm used to watching videos that are <laughs> 60 to 90 seconds long. And I have to go sit and listen to this one guy talk about this book for 40 minutes. Like the, the demand for entertainment has probably spiked because of what people are used to there. And I'm sure there are pastors who are feeling the pressure of like, man, I'm going to try to be more like a TikTok video to keep people's attention. And I think that would be a sad, sad thing for small town, uh, for any church to try to cater to that. So we use the term uh, death works here on this show. It comes from a, from a book, Rise and Triumph, the Modern Self. So death works is like, it's basically the culture we're living in. It's everything. It, it, it's an anti-culture. It, it's, it's, it's uh, everything that's trying to tear down what our ancestors have built. And we see that in abortion. We see that in the critical race theory stuff. We see that in postmodernism. There is no God, stuff like that. It's just everything's a free for all. Do you see that in small towns? And do you think it looks different than it does in the big city? Yeah, oh, that's a big question. It is. And I, I, I probably can't speak very well to, um, whether it's different from the big city probably would surprise people who are not in small towns, how much um, that, I don't know if you're commenting on the the chaos and the flux. Um, oh yeah. That's I, partly I, haven't, it. I haven't read. So just that sense of like, everything is changing rapidly and things that we once thought were okay are all of a sudden not okay. And we don't even understand why. And that's yep. just, yeah, you're on the money. Yeah. So that I, I know is happening in small towns. And I, I think maybe what would shock people is that small towns are not as resilient against them as they might have thought they were going to be. You picture them being, here's some conservative, traditional values, a lot of old people who are going to stick to their guns and they're not going to cave to those pressures. Um, 
and they're not they're not holding their ground. So like as far as I'm, I'm talking a little bit more, I, I would say socially now than the church. And just speaking of like yeah. the community of a small town, you typically think of them being a, a conservative group of people. Um, and a, in a lot of these things, in particular, I would say things like um, the LGBTQ agenda or transgenderism, just having no um, no worldview foundation to resist that onslaught. Um, and so are, yeah, just caving to it pretty fast. Okay. Um, there's some, and so, some of the interesting things in small towns are like now that remote work is possible, a lot of people are coming out of Kansas City and moving into these right. small towns. And so getting some very polarized communities. Um, one place that I was just talking with some friends to, um, if it's going to be, if liberalism overt, um, in your face, death works, as you're calling them, are going to invade a small town community. A lot of times it's going to come through the library. Your library is going to be the place where that really gets, um, I, yeah, I've got several friends who've recently said like, yeah, we don't, we stopped taking our kids to the library in this small town of 1200 people because that's where the flags are. And that's where the, the, that stand is being taken. Um, so yeah, you probably have it less like you, you guys talked about parades and stuff like that. I don't know that we've seen that. Um, we actually here in Atchison is a very Roman Catholic community, <clears throat> uh, partly because Benedictine college is here. Right across from Benedictine College, someone lives um, that is very progressive, and they have a giant billboard up that's pro-abortion. They have a giant pride flag right outside their house. So it's right across from the main chapel on campus. Um, and you can see there, like, you can see the, the cultural clash happening. And I even feel in my heart like a, a rising ire when I see that. Um, Part, probably partly because like early on in my life, I thought I was going to go into politics and so care about society and wanted to fight on those grounds. Um, and now just realizing like, man, that's what's going to change that homeowner's heart is not going to be putting up an angry sign across the street from them. And I'm not even saying like I'm against people putting up signs that promote the truth. What I'm saying is like, Let's not get caught up in fighting, um, yeah, wielding the sword, I guess, to fight the, the, the kingdom of heaven's battle, that keeping the gospel as the mission of the church, we want to keep that really clear, preaching the gospel um, to our neighbors. And um, I guess, like, I'd even be curious to hear, as you guys have been thinking about death works, how, to, how do you wrestle with this? At what point should the church take first Peter as a cue and say, we're the church living in exile now. And our goal is to be, do everything with gentleness and respect. We don't, we want to bless those who are cursing us. We are, you know, the way that our Royal priesthood comes out is that when we get slandered, we bless in return. And when we get things that are, yeah. When, when the death works are happening around us, how much, yeah, I, I'd even be curious to hear how you guys talk, like talk and think about that on the show here. How much do you, are you able like to oppose that on a political scale? And how much do you say, well, we actually are opposing that by being meek and letting them um, persecute and revile us and respond in ways that do not make sense according to the world, but are that treasure of heaven shining in this field? I'm going to let my post mill friend take the first shot at that. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. Uh, well, I would, I guess I would think of it as um, kind of the distinctives between like um, personal attacks, personal enemies, and then like more broadly who are political enemies and stuff like that. So, you know, we can, I don't think there's, there would be anything wrong with supporting candidates who are saying that they would, you know, Hey, we're going to outlaw, these outrageous displays of, you know, filth in public. Um, while at the same time, that's not necessarily the church's place to go out and, um, you know, tear those things down. Does that make yeah. sense? But yeah. there's nothing. I mean, we live in a, a political system where we're allowed to vote, where we're allowed to support candidates. We have a lot of freedom with that. And so working yeah. for those candidates, supporting them, and 
those sort of political goals, I guess I would separate those out from like personal attacks, like someone personally slandering your church or, um, or you yourself in those situations. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like kind of right. distinguish between those two different things. Like, Hey, broadly, yes, we will support these people who are going to say these people are enemies, but then personally, I don't get that. I don't have that right to go then draw the sword and, you know, go chop down my neighbor because he, you know, is a living, in, living in sin. No, I think that that's, a, that would be a helpful distinction for Christians to keep bear in mind. Good question, because we, we need to know that we're, it's not, oh, we need to think about this because it might be coming someday. I mean, it, I mean it's here. Yeah, right. We're, we're, we're living in that time. That's absolutely right. Well, so, one one more uh, kind of more death-related question before hopefully maybe we can bring some a little bit of, you know, resurrection and glory side yeah. of things. Uh, real quick. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, for those of us who live in the city, what um, – What's death in a small town like versus versus a larger town? Death in a small church. It's like I was at, I was at two a visit, visitation last week and a funeral last week. Um, but I don't know that um, I'm trying to picture a, a few if I've been to a funeral in a big town. So I'm not sure I could distinguish between the two. But I'll just say like there has I, I've heard people commenting on how um, funerals are declining in attendance. We are not a society that has the wisdom of going to the house of mourning. We we can't stand dealing with weighty matters that death brings. Um, but small towns are, the community is still tight enough that when someone dies, uh, both of the, both the, um, not, I'm sorry, the um, visitation that I went to for one, actually a brother in the Lord, um, and then, well, yeah, both of them were believers, actually. So the funeral the next day for for another brother in the Lord, um, they were attended really well. And you see the community really real from it. Um, one of the men um, was um, hit by a drunk driver and killed. And um, my friend pastors in that town, and he was a pretty committed verse-by-verse expositional preacher. And he paused his series to talk about com- the comfort that Christians can bring to others from second Corinthians because of how it was, he just saw it affecting his church and the man wasn't even a member of his church, just a, a citizen of the town, but his whole community was rocking from that. And I think that that happens in some sense, anytime a young person is killed tragically, but probably doesn't ripple through the whole town, you know, like maybe it hits the news in Kansas city and everybody thinks like, Oh, that's really sad, but you don't think of it again the next morning. Whereas it, it probably is the the talk of the town for a couple of weeks and, you know, the community shows up to the funeral. And um, so in some ways, maybe just think connecting it to gospel ministry, it does provide opportunities for pastors to be bold with, you know, when, when you get that opportunity in a small town, you're going to have the family and friends show up to church. Um, and this is, this is not the, this is the time to, make these eternal matters clear. I've I've had several pastors tell me, man, I would prefer to do a funeral over a wedding any day. <laughs> I mm-hmm. love preaching the gospel at funerals and I haven't been in pastoral ministry long enough to do a funeral. So it still feels really intimidating to me. Um, but most of the pastors I've talked to say that is, that's the time when the gospel hope is clearest. And I love proclaiming that good news. So yeah, that's, I think all I could comment on is just that it probably affects the community more and so you get greater attendance at the funerals. Um, but even after that visitation, I heard, I think it's just the typical, like, um, I don't know if it, it's not even like I'm picturing uh, the movie Gladiator. He says in there, death smiles at us all and all we can do is smile back. <laughs> well, that's pretty, that's pretty epic. That's not what I'm talking about, though. This is almost just like I can't handle death. And so I try to joke it off and laugh it off. Um, and so when I was coming out of the visitation, heard some guys just, I think you could tell, like, we're being obnoxiously loud because probably they're feeling this pressure, like death is weighing on me and I can't handle that weight. And so I'm going to deal with it superficially and joke and laugh about silly things to try to get myself out of this frame of mind and back into my 
coasting in a superficial world. And I, I imagine that's true. Small town, big town. You know, I don't think that's small town particular, but I did see that um, as just a, yeah, that, that resistance to the wisdom of being in the house of mourning and taking eternal things seriously. We don't, small towns have, I don't think they have preserved that. So more on the glory side, we win in the end, right? This doesn't have to be a completely dour conversation, but what is the process of reforming and rebuilding a, a dying rural church? I know that that, that is not a small task to take on. Kind of give us some insight into what that looks like. Well, um, it's not, I, I, I don't believe it's rocket science. Um, I actually resist, um, treating contexts too seriously. Um, I have a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth about contextualized ministry. And the I am disappointed that you just said that. <laughs> sorry, IMV. They actually, I, be I, tried to a, <laughs> I was going to say, I, I tried to be a missionary with the IMB and they wouldn't take me. So <laughs> well, that's probably why. This is a, it's sad. <laughs> um, yeah, I, Again, like maybe it can be valuable. So I'm not trying to say it's all bad, but it has influenced so much evangelical thinking. And um, it's some of it, I think, is Tim Keller's influence. He thought so critically about New York culture and then wrote his book, Center Church, and encouraged a lot of church planters to think really carefully about their context. Um, And if you've got the spare time and the intellect to do it, that's fine. But I think the fight is maintaining a fullness of faith that God's word is going to do the work and I've got to be patient and bold and stir myself up and my church to zeal in those things over and over again. And so what I have started saying, like one reason why I'm wanting Agros to become a fellowship of churches and not just me trying to train some individuals is because I think what small town churches need is a devotion to the ordinary means of grace. That's, that kind of landed on my radar last year as the the phrase I'm using for what I want our church to be and what I think um, a small is the only way a small town church I think can be revitalized. It's kind of a funny thing. So you could approach this two ways, pragmatically or principally. You come at it pragmatically and say, what what's going to keep a small town church open? How can you do that? Well, you're going to have to go really simple. You're going to have to have preaching the word, prayer fellowship and the ordinances. Those are the ordinary means of grace. But if that's all your expectation is that the gospel creates a people who are zealously devoted to these things, that's actually the principle, isn't it? That's actually what we're meant to do. That's what Acts 2 is saying, like, look what it created. People who are devoted to what looks to the world like a farmer's field. Like, how could anything spectacular be happening there And it's because they've found a treasure worth more than they own. And they're selling all they have to buy that in hearing the word of God preached, studying the word of God together in fellowship, praying for one another. Just think about how everywhere the American church's prayer life has died. The prayer meeting everywhere that I know of is attended by 10% of the church. I think just speaks to how secular we've become. And so part of me has even been like, I'm not like, I love small town churches. I was served so well by them, but I'm not even sure that this is only for small towns. I want to see all churches say, let's cut away everything that distracts us from being devoted to what looks like bland church. Looks like that's just, that's what, I mean, of course a church is going to do the word prayer and fellowship. Okay. But we're going to be a cool church because we wear flannel because in small towns, people wear flannel. (laughs) I don't, I don't want to hear anything like that. That's, that's where I talk about like contextualization starts to annoy me. Like I don't, 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 don't try to make it about meeting this culture where they're at. Cause we are creating a new culture. It's a, it's the kingdom of heaven on earth and it's people devoted to those things. So I think that process of revitalization is, it is a patient process, but it's helping those churches see what we've been given in the ordinary means of grace is access to everything we need for life and godliness. And that doesn't make us a second tier church. That doesn't make us subpar. The more devoted we are to that, the more the the grace of God is pouring into us and real stuff will happen. You might not look cool. You might not have a 
you know, uh, a really cool social media presence or neat videos or even like exciting bustling kids programs and those kind of things. But if you've got two or three gathered in Christ's name, what more do you want? What, what would you trade for the grace of God in your church? I know we would all say nothing, but what God has revealed to us is it's he's hidden it in this ordinary field. He's hidden it in a church that's devoted to the word, devoted to praying to him, devoted to fellowshipping, having spiritual conversations with one another. And so I think that the work is really just helping people make those connections and see like there's lots of potential in our gatherings for great mighty works of God to happen here if we devote ourselves to these things and don't come thinking like, well, of course we're going to have a sermon, but that's not, you know, that's not a church that's really on fire. A church that's on fire is going to do revival or a church that's on fire is going to have, you know, a, a, a great um, music program that wows everybody every week with a rock concert or that's, that's successful church. Ah, let's, let's cast off that notion of successful church. Let's devote ourselves to the ordinary things so that the, I've been reading First Thessalonians a lot. The word of God is at work in you believers. What more do you want than the word of the eternal God doing things in your soul that the human wisdom cannot do, that asceticism cannot do, that traditional conservative values cannot do? Get the word of God at work in you believers. And so I think it is just part of why I want Agros to be a supporting fellowship is because I think we lose that as pastors. Pastors are out here in the trenches alone and forget I'm supposed to be devoted to these things and calling my people to be devoted to these things. I get caught up in the uh, the petty things that are going on, or I get caught up in the worldly pursuits of success. And I, I want, like Jordan, your dad has been a great encouragement. When I get together with him, the fellowship focusing on, let's keep ourselves devoted to these things. Do you believe this or not? You know, question, asking stuff like that. Do you want the grace of God? What would you give up? for the grace of God. Not, I don't want anything but the grace of God in our church. And so, sorry, I'm, it's late and I'm acting like I'm preaching a sermon here, brothers. I'm Brother, sorry. You I'm are, just trying to say. That's, that's straight <laughs> fire, man. That's uh, actually, you have my vote for uh, next president of SBC just for that. Yeah, so. that'd be great. <laughs> that's uh, that's, I think that's what we need to hear. So thank you for that. So, oh, uh, thank you. I, okay. So, so really the only reason we had you on, is to answer this question. Can a group of us move to a small town, capture a church and reform it and rebuild it? Cause that's, that's really what we want to know. Peter's post mill is optional. <laughs> yeah. What does capture a church mean? I saw that and I was like, okay, is this a coup? Are you staging a coup? Like, I don't know what we're yes. talking uh, about here. <laughs> I mean, in a sense, yes. If you have a uh, more congregational model, and you say, bring, you know, in a small town where, say, it's a dying church, and maybe yes. there's 15 to 20 people who are attending, and you bring in 25 people yeah. and literally capture the church. Like you can yeah. you become so members. I and- just try to clarify nobody ends like tied up and gagged in a closet, not that kind of capture. I mean, maybe Aunt Eula, but other than that, no. <laughs> that's that's your post mill coming in now. Um, that's, uh, I, I thought about that question, Peter. I love it because I love the ambition that would send people to a small town to have a healthy church there. And so I almost don't want to say one of the thoughts that came to mind because I'd only love to encourage that kind of fervor and that desire to go do that kind of work because these small town churches are dying. They're closing their doors. Uh, one particular mission field that's going to open up, I think it's going to be kind of the Wild West, is all the United Methodist churches that left the UMC and now have uh, no affiliation are just kind of like, well, we believe the Bible and the UMC stopped doing that, so we don't know what to do now. That's going to be like, yeah, you could have a, a fam- families come in and, and support that church. But the one thing I was going to say that I think is valuable to keep in mind um, and this is, this comes into really clear relief in small town churches, but everybody knows that the church is people. The church is a body of people. And one of the, I was a part of a, a somewhat bigger church growing up, up got close to 200. Um, one of the things that starts happening in a bigger church is you get a sense of like, we have a culture and we feel like something larger than life. And so if you left that context to go to a small town and you're trying to create 
an atmosphere or a culture or feel like something larger than life is going on and you step into this room where there's 12 people and it's just three generations and grandma's friend and you're like we're going to capture this church and revitalize and reform this church and what you're thinking is i want it to feel that culture i want that kind of thing happening here you're not i don't think you're actually gonna you're not going to serve those saints um, if they're saints, it's very possible that a lot, I think our churches have not taken regenerate membership very seriously. So I, I would want to be very alert to that problem going into those churches. But what I'm trying to get at is like sin dies really hard. And so if you want to go in and revitalize a church, know that the work is going to be Aunt Beulah needing to hear the truth over and over again. And especially if she hasn't been in a healthy church for a long time, there can be a lot of hardened, deceitful sin, even in the believer's heart, that's going to take that group of families truly loving her and wanting to walk her into glory more than they want to feel like, oh, we're a, we're a cool church out here now, or we're a really healthy, we have that same culture that we left in the big church. If that's what you're holding to and you're thinking, we succeed when we finally recreate that, and you don't come in thinking, we're just here to guide these saints into the truth and pour ourselves out, um, giving them the word, receiving the word, um, then I, I think that you would probably be setting yourself up for failure. You'd be setting yourself up for a church split. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, and I wasn't thinking so much like the the culture of bringing one culture into another. It's more like you said, you know, having an actual, you know, on fire gospel focused message that you're bringing to them and you know, yeah. and not yeah. just kind of this slow decay. But yes. I think your, your yeah. point still remains, though, yeah. that that is some that would be I could see that being a big temptation for a group of people, you know, who are, quote unquote, on fire. Hey, let's go do this. Yeah. And maybe maybe you have some misplaced ambitions there. Never yeah, that's all. I, I Like I said, almost didn't want to say it because I love that. I would lo- love to see churches doing that. Um, especially as people can work remotely like hey why why let this town of 200 not have the gospel preached there why not live there and reach those 200 people for the rest of your life for the glory of christ i love to see that ambition um i just i think in a in a smaller church you do the the personal nature of ministry is just amplified to the 10th degree um and so you you that's a one thing that a lot of young pastors start out in small town churches because they their resume doesn't look good enough to go to the big church so they go to the small church and they just burn bridges and mess the church up for three years but their resumes now got three years of experience and they move on to the next church um, and part of it is because they're not recognizing like you've come in with a lot of lofty and good theological convictions, but you've forgotten that these are people and part of them growing in that knowledge is a sanctification process. It's not something you just force. The spirit has to reveal the glory of Christ to them and break off the hardness of sin for those changes to happen. And that, that takes love and patience and self-sacrifice and meekness and, um, and I, yeah, Peter wasn't in any way trying to imply you weren't willing to do those things. Maybe I was just trying to say that's really sensitive on my radar because I have seen young pastors go in and try to do that and not really recognize this is, I have to be willing to do this for the long haul. I have to actually love these people for a long time. And this church might not be what I would dream it could be for a long time. Am I okay with that to help these saints grow in their walk with Christ? So that's yeah. Again, I'm sorry if it if no, no, no. I made it. No, I mean that's a really good point. It, it's got to be a commitment to living there for the rest of your life if you're going to go do something like that. It can't just be like kind of this like oh well, remote works a thing right now, so this works for me for the next three or four years, and we'll go move out here, and then you know we're going to blow everything up and then leave when it's convenient for me because I can go get a job wherever I want while these folks are you know living at the only retirement community they can afford. Yeah, so, that's exactly right. Makes that's exactly sense. Right. So last question here, and I know it's a, I know it's a hopeful question. I kind of already know what the answer is, but you know, what is the state of the gospel uh, kind of in the Midwest here, small town? I know it's, I know it's moving. I know it's growing. Uh, yeah. If you can give us just any more kind of detail insight, give us that. 
Yeah, that's really another good question. Um, one thing that Agros forces me to wrestle with is um, to, to wrestle with passages like Jesus saying, you know, if they are not working against us, they're for us. I tend to want to have a tighter, like more substantial, I should say, more substantial theological standards for fellowship. We just have a, a strong preference for that and maybe some convictions behind that. And certainly in my church would, would want our church members to know our confession of faith and agree to it. And But Agros, you know, causes me to wrestle with, okay, what if I do have this church that just left the UMC and they're kind of floundering and they probably don't even have, like, they might be able to find a statement of faith in a dusty drawer somewhere, but they're not actually living according to it. How do I come alongside them and try to identify, are these people here truly trusting in my Savior, Jesus? And are they co-laborers for the gospel, even if in some immature way or impure way and by co-laboring with them and just showing them compassion and honor for the work they have done for the Lord and then trying to help them improve in that. And I don't have a great, like I have not landed on, this is definitely the way I test that now. This is how I know, you know, I would tend to, for example, prefer longer sermons on a Sunday. Um, and I've worked with a church. It's like, we sent some pulpit supply out to them, Agros did, and got some feedback that was like, yeah, we don't really want a sermon over 20 minutes long. <laughs> so I'm kind of like, well, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know, like, how am I supposed to evaluate that? I hope that if they would continue coming to fellowship events through Agros, they'd be led away from that. But I also wrestle with like, or should I just be like, no, that's probably grounds for us not fellowshipping together because we have very different concepts of what the church should be about. When I say devoted to the ordinary means of grace, I mean, at least be working for longer than 20 minutes. Maybe that's where you're at now, but I would like you to say like, we don't like that. We want more word. Um, so it's hard for me to speak to what's the state of the gospel because I'm still wrestling with who, who would I consider a co-laborer for the gospel? I we have a statement of theological commitments and it's, it's a, I mean, I think it, you know, it excludes, it would, ex, I don't think a Roman Catholic could affirm it. I don't think a, a liberal Protestant could affirm it. Um, I don't think that Mormons or, you know, um, Jehovah's witnesses could affirm it. But other than that, it's just kind of an evangelical statement. Um, and I don't know how to, how to speak to what the gospel is here. Cause there's a lot of people who see that and are like, yes, we love Jesus. Jesus died for our sins. We want to preach that. We want to work toward that. And my hope is it, one person who really uh, influenced me a lot in this was John Newton. I read a lot of his letters a couple of years ago. And because he was working in the Anglican church with people who I don't even know if they claimed to ha actually have faith in the ministry, you know, pastors who were just doing it for a career and had, they were atheists. Um, the way that he had learned to come alongside and lead other laborers to an evangelical understanding of the gospel and actually be saved and then completely change their ministry. I just learned from him to have a, a generous heart with people outside the church, I guess, is maybe the way I'd think about that now. If they're not in my church and I don't, you know, I don't have to give an account for their soul. I Excommunication is not a possibility. And they're telling me, yes, we believe those things and we want to advance that gospel. Right now, I'm tending to work with them. And on those grounds, there's a lot of people that I think want to be supported and trained for small town ministry. So in some ways would say, yeah, state of the gospel is in a, a, a positive place. But in another sense, I just say, I don't, I don't think it's in a good place. Go all the way back to the beginning of our conversation. I think a lot of people confuse traditional morals with the gospel. And when they hear me saying Jesus died for their sins, they're, they're mainly just saying like, yeah, we know that's what we call the gospel, but really what we want to see is a recovery of 1950s America. And so I think that what the cherish the treasure of the gospel in our region is churches who are radically devoted to the ordinary means of grace and letting that transform us and um, yeah, not be pulled into any cultural ties, whether that's um, instead we would be that. I love the, I think it mainly comes out of Nine Marks Ministries, the view of the church as an embassy. Let's be an embassy of heaven here. We are the outposts of that kingdom. Um, I think that 
there's a lot of churches that are not doing that very well and really want to see that strengthened. Um, so I hope that's helpful. I, I probably can't speak any more to that because I, I don't have, like I said, a lot of relationships with a lot of churches. Well, Joe, thank you for your time. That was a, like we went kind of long there, but we really appreciate it. You had some really, really great insights to everything. Uh, and we loved having you on. What, uh, where can our listeners connect with you? What, how can they support Agros and um, where can they find you? Um, our website is agrosfellowship.com and all my contact info is there. We, uh, if you're in our region, we have a, I send out emails inviting people to fellowship events um, whenever we schedule those regularly throughout the year. We'll have a big conference in November that we'd love anyone who wants to learn more about the ordinary means of grace and why churches should be devoted to that to come. Um, and they can find all that information on that website. And then if you're not in the region and just wanted to pray for Agros, we'll also send out prayer updates occasionally and could put you on an email list for that too. We will, uh, we'll put that in the show notes yes, for the episode. Yeah. That, so, that is the number right. one lie told on podcasts though, is we'll put that in the show notes. <laughs> like, I mean, every time I hear that, it's not ever in the show notes. Well, here on Death and Glory, <laughs> we sometimes stick to our promises. So Good. you at least have that. Yes. <laughs> I'm proud well, of you. A little bit of integrity. Thank you. Well, Joe, thank you for, uh, uh, for being here and thank you listener for listening to death and glory podcast. We hope that this episode edified you. Uh, please take a moment, go to your favorite podcast platform, like and review the episode and share it with your friends. Um, and also if you're a fan of the show and you want to support death and glory, please go to patreon.com. Uh, slash Puritan Pub Media. Joe, thank you very much. We'll have you You're on welcome. again, brother. Yeah, brothers. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good night. To Canaan's land I'm on my way Where the soul of man never dies My darkest night will turn today The soul of man never dies Dear friends, there'll be no sad farewell, there'll be no tear-dimmed nights. Where all is peace and joy and love, where the soul of man never dies. A rose is growing there for me, where the soul of man never dies. And I will spend eternity where the soul of man never dies. Dear friends, there'll be no sad farewell, there'll be no tear-dimmed nights. Where all is peace and joy and love, where the soul of man never dies.